he was like hugely good looking lad had a great job lovely house lovely girlfriend loving family he was the guy that if you were in trouble he would be the first one to jump in his car and, and kind of come and help you he was the guy if he was on a Saturday night out with his mates in Newcastle going for a beer and they'd look back and say where's Jordan gone he was the guy talking to the homeless person he looked the part and everyone thought he was. Got into my car and got this incoming call from Jordan's partner and girlfriend, Charlotte. And all I remember saying is, Steve, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry it's Jordan. He's taken his own life. The final messages, the WhatsApp messages I shared with Jordan, the fact we lose one person every 40 seconds to suicide. It's incumbent upon us all to understand more about mental health. I wrote that article and it was, as you said, I thought, well, if one person reads this and can see the absolute devastation they will leave behind maybe that might be enough to stop them taking that next step and I have to say it was I got an email one morning from Ariana Huffington from the Huff Post I started to get messages from around the world from people who were considering taking their own lives who said I've read your article and decided I can't do that to my family there is always hope hello beautiful I'm Rebecca Davi and you're listening to the Rebecca Davi show empowering people around the world December the 4th, Steve, December the 4th, 2019, that was the day that you found out that Jordan sadly committed suicide. Tell us what happened on that day. Yeah, well, I um, say my, my background, just to kind of position all this, was that I'd worked in consultancy and, and training and corporate speaking for many years. And that day, I was working with another large client, an automotive group in, in the West Midlands uh, in the UK. And uh, um had a good day, been a busy, a busy day and um, got into my car. I was about to take a around about a three hour journey uh, back home to to where I live in Harrogate. And uh, I literally just sat down in the car and I put my phone into the holder for the mobile phone on my dashboard and got this incoming call from Jordan's um, partner and girlfriend, Charlotte. And, mm. you know, I... <laughs> You know, it's Charlotte. You 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 answer the phone, kind of really cheerful and upbeat, and and then immediately I could tell the distress in her voice and the tears. And you know, I remember, you know, and I've written about this that that I remember about fifteen seconds of what was logged as a two minute conversation, and and all I remember saying is, Steve, I'm I'm really sorry. I'm I'm so sorry. It's Jordan. He's he's taken his own life, and. Mm-hmm. From that moment onwards, of course, my life was was going to change completely. I mean, that obviously that must have been such a shock. And, and were there any signs prior to that? Well, I think you know the history, and and you know, I in the last two years now working in the suicide prevention sector, as I do, I've, I've been able to speak to many people who attempted to take their own lives, to people who've lost loved ones, to mm. researchers and academics and all kinds of people, and. You know, every story is very unique and very, very different. In Jordan's case, he was diagnosed with clinical depression in 2015, uh, clinical depression and anxiety. Um, He had some counselling around that time, but in the years that followed, really, he kind of seemed to be managing quite well. He would go to the GP to get antidepressant medication um, whenever he was kind of going through a cycle. He was someone who didn't like to take medication. And I think one of the challenges was that he would kind of come off it as soon as he could do. And then when he felt he needed it, he would go back. And in the weeks leading up to December the 4th, I think there's no doubt he was struggling more than we've ever seen him before. 
but with my very limited knowledge of, of kind of mental health illnesses at that time, none of us in the family expected, you know, what happened that day. So it did come as a, a, a huge shock really when it when it happened you found that majority of people that are contemplating committing suicide just really want someone to talk to they're going through pain they don't they don't want to pass away they don't want to take their lives yeah uh, it's a really really um good point rebecca that a lot of the researchers people like professor rory o'connor and and some of the other you know big names out there pretty well everyone who who works in this sector and a lot of this study comes from speaking with people who survived suicide yeah. attempts some very well documented cases um, and one particular with with a gentleman in the the Golden Gate Bridge in, in the States and you know who who said at the moment that he kind of let go of the bridge he knew instantly that he wanted to to live wow. now he survived that somehow pretty catastrophic injuries many other people have spoken to said that it isn't about wanting to die as strange as that seems it is about this incredible mental pain in most cases in some cases physical pain of course as well so not not every suicide is related to mental health issues but the majority are and it's for someone like myself who doesn't experience and hasn't experienced mental health issues other than the trauma following Jordan's death and, and that period there if we can imagine having so much pain in your head that you literally see no escape you feel completely trapped by this overwhelming pain that you have that there is no other solution the only solution to get rid of that pain at that moment that it reaches its peak is to take your own life now i, I don't know how many people listening to this could ever imagine being in that level of pain but time and time again the conversations i've had with people that's that's what we're dealing with get rid of that pain people would want to carry on living yeah. but but that of course is 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 the challenge that we're faced with it just shows especially during these times Steve it's so important to even just like check up on loved ones check up on friends see if they're okay because you don't know what people are going through it's a really important you know point that you know community and support and, and even the simplest of interventions sometimes can be the difference between somebody choosing to take their own life because a lot of people think that suicide is is quite an impulsive thing that it it's kind of decided kind of right I'm going to take my own life and do it quite often though that people have built up to this and had a plan mm -hmm. and and in Jordan's case you know we said this came as a complete shock to us it certainly didn't come as a complete shock to Jordan because when we went through his house and his belongings in the weeks following his death, came across boxes with journals in that he'd written. And, you know, we saw a journal entry from 2015, four yeah. years earlier, just saying, I've been researching methods of, of suicide today. So quite often people have kind of planned for it. So the one thing is that we could say, gosh, this is, this is something that must be really hard to, to prevent. And yet, Again, there's a huge body of evidence that will say that most suicides are preventable. And that requires a number of things. That requires, at that moment, probably that someone's reached that point, an intervention of some case has to happen. And if that happens, then right at that moment, and it could be just walking up to somebody who might be standing by a bridge or whatever and asking them what the time is or, or what the weather is. It could be just that simple moment of, of breaking that intense pain but of course it goes much further back than that it's how do you really in terms of suicide prevention stop people from getting all the way along that that journey from considering suicide to then 
deciding they're going to take action on it. And that's the big task that we've all got yeah. as a society, really. And dare I say that goes right back to how we bring our children up, how they're educated, the responsibility in communities and schools. You know, if 50% of children who are displaying, this is pre-high school children who are displaying any forms of anxiety or mental health issues, go on to develop full-blown mental health problems, then doesn't take a rocket scientist to see where you've got to go back to to start making that that difference really community wise we need to really come together and care for one another as opposed to being so divided a lot really really needs to change what I saw Steve was something that really really stood out to me is that you felt like you weren't getting a lot of support and I would have thought that should be the time where you should get the most amount of support so that was really surprising to me can you talk us through that? Yeah, it's quite incredible. And what I've learned is that it differs around the country. You might go to, to one area and receiving, you know, incredible support from, from local councils and police. In our situation, we had a situation where in, in, in Yorkshire, where I live, where you, I, I live in North Yorkshire, and, mm. and Jordan, who was only 20 minutes away, lived in West Yorkshire. You think, well, that's still Yorkshire, but it but it, it's slightly different. Immediately afterwards, and again, I've documented this in the articles that I've, that I've published, you know, we were pretty well left to fend for ourselves. Even the police communication in the beginning, you know, I was given a, a number um, by Charlotte of the policewoman who was looking after Charlotte at the time she came home and found Jordan. It was the same policewoman that called me out of the blue as I'm driving home on Charlotte's phone. So I assumed it was Charlotte initially, and then she introduced herself as the woman police officer. And their opening line was to me, hello, Mr. Vail, I just need to ask you, you know, do you have a funeral director? <laughs> what? You know, I've just had this news. I'm driving home trying to relay this on hands-free to the family, trying to get myself back up, you know, a three and a half hour journey at rush hour on the motorways on the M42. And the opening line from a policewoman to me is, not, I'm really sorry for your loss, Mr. Philip, or it, you know, I need to ask you, do you have a funeral director or would you like us to organize one? And, and you know, if that doesn't hit home, what's just happened, you know, it, it's just incredible. But it went on from there that, that that police officer then went on annual leave for seven days and she was my only contact. So I was leaving text messages and voicemails that because she was on annual leave, she didn't respond to till she got back. So I had to drive around police stations in the first 24, 48 hours to even find out where Jordan was. I had no idea where, where they'd taken him or what was going on. So, you know, we, we had kind of all this to, to deal with. So there was certainly no family liaison. There was certainly no stepping in to help. And it was only some weeks later, someone who's become a good friend of mine now and who was a suicide prevention lead for the city of York, uh, lived in Harrogate, lives in Harrogate and was an ex-police officer for 30 years. He just said, did you ever get this guide? It's called Help is at Hand, produced by Public Health England. Did you ever see? I said, no, I never saw it. He said, well, in North Yorkshire, we automatically give this out oh, to anyone yeah. bereaved by suicide. But in West Yorkshire, I don't think they have it. And, and you know, this is part of the whole journey that I'm on at the moment. Rebecca is why do we not have a more joined up service around this whole issue of mental health and, and suicide? Because it is so fragmented at the moment and so inconsistent as well. So what are some of the things that you think that needs to change? You know, I think we have to recognise that 
we have a mental health service with the NHS that, like the rest of the NHS at the moment, is is overstretched mm. uh, and underfunded, and and it was before COVID came along. In in fairness, you know, we've had the highest level of referrals of self harm in young people under twenty mm. to NHS services for years. It's the highest it's ever been, and we're getting referrals to CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services for young people there. Again, numbers are, are kind of up through through the roof at the moment. And the services are just not able to cope. The challenge is, and again, coming back to hope here, mm. is that there are, you know, many wonderful third sector organisations and charities out there, big and small, you know, doing some amazing job. The problem seems to be, despite a government plan trying to pull all these together, is they're not pulling together and they tend not to work in harmony. And, and until we get the NHS councils and third sector organisations working more closely together, and also something you said earlier, getting us all to actually recognise that this is something that affects all of us. And if you think suicide is or mental health isn't going to come knocking on the door very close to you, with one in four people in the UK experiencing a mental health problem each year, I think you're going to be a little deluded to think that you're going to escape. And I think, you know, for, for families and workplaces, given the level of mental health issues we have globally, and the fact we lose one person every 40 seconds to suicide, it's incumbent upon us all to understand more about mental health and how it could affect us and how it could affect someone we know and love as well. I'm trying to recall in schools where we taught about the importance of mental health and I don't think so. I oh, know. I mean, I, I certainly don't recall it, and I'm not aware that there are now through PC through through some of the education programs. They're brief kind of mentions, but um, uh, again, there's a lot of great you know people trying to do some great work in schools at the moment. But it but it's not it's not consistent. I have a regular meetings with the Department of Health and Social Care and their suicide prevention leads and mental health leads. They are investing a lot of money at, at the moment into schools and mental health leads. They have a program they're looking to roll out and have currently got it out into just over 4,000 schools. But, you know, when you look at the number of schools there are in the country, that's still a long way to go. Three weeks after Jordan sadly passed away, you, you created an article. The article was called The Day My Son Took His Life. And, and that was actually directed at anyone contemplating committing suicide to understand of obviously the impact it can have on family and friends can you tell us more about that yeah it, it's you know it's kind of where this journey that I'm on now all, all began really Rebecca that I worked in consultancy and training for many years and back in 2008 I was introduced to the online business platform LinkedIn didn't really know anything about it I wasn't a social media user I was clearly not a millennial back then I'm not uh, clearly one now but I kind of got LinkedIn and understood kind of how it could be used for business and, and within a very short period of time I saw an opportunity to really train companies and organizations in the UK and globally on, on how to use that platform really effectively I set up a, a business that lasted you know 11 and a half years and that's exactly what I was doing on December the 4th Mm. Uh, training another company around LinkedIn and other aspects of social media. And, you know, with all this mess going on with the police and dealing with the coroner's office and, and just the trauma of everything we were going through, you know, the physical trauma that I was experiencing afterwards, I thought, you know, this, 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 you know, other people must be going through this. You know, are they going through the same mess? Or, or... I had a good friend of mine said, look, Steve, you know, what you're going through, you you should really document this. You should be writing it down. You might need this at some point you know, to refer to for 
legal reasons or whatever it might be, or just so you can look back at this this time and reflect. And uh, part of that journey was to say, right, I'll kind of write the story as it is three weeks on. And um, thinking, you know, I've got a network already on LinkedIn that was a reasonable size, not quite the size it is now. But I wrote that article, my finger kind of hovered over the publish button for a few minutes thinking, well, why am I doing this? What What's my motivation? And it was, as you said, I thought, well, if one person reads this and can see the absolute devastation they would leave behind, maybe that might be enough to stop them taking that next step. And I have to say it was in a number of cases because I started to get messages from around the world from people who were considering taking their own lives who said, I've read your article and decided I can't do that to my family. Wow. And all the people that I love. I got messages from psychologists. Um, I got an email one morning from Ariana Huffington from the Huff Post. I yeah. love ones. The messages suddenly started coming in. And I think it was because many felt the article was written in a very raw and kind of open way. As you know, there's the final messages, the WhatsApp messages I shared with Jordan. <laughs> Yeah, the message I shared with him the night before. And uh, now even two years on, you know, talking about this, it, it's, you know, just you just think about that, that message and that conversation and uh, just no sign, just no sign of what was um, going to come the next day, really. He was first a hugely good-looking lad, had a great job, lovely house, lovely girlfriend, loving family. He was the guy that, you know, if you were in trouble, he would be the first one to jump in his car and, and kind of come and help you. He was the guy if he was on a Saturday night out uh, with his mates in Newcastle going for a beer. And they'd look back and say, where's Jordan gone? He was the guy talking to the homeless person. He looked the part and everyone thought he was. And yet this is a story we hear so often. It's the ones that you least suspect mm -hmm. who are struggling the most. But they usually those that tend to give the most of themselves. And I think what I've learned to understand about that, Rebecca, is that it's probably because they get it. They understand what it's like, and, and that's why they're the first to kind of be there for others as well. It just says a lot about his heart. Oh, huge. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, I know I'm going to say because he was my son, but I've let everyone else say it. People that have worked with him that still to this day hadn't heard the news and messaged me, and then will describe him. You know, his laugh, what he was like to work with, who he was, how generous he was. Mm. You know, these are people not just saying, oh, he was a great guy. You know, these are really, you know, the descriptions at his funeral from his friends. I learned more about my son since his death than I, than I ever knew before. Yeah, and just very proud, just very proud of who he was and I suppose who he is, really, yeah. It's a reflection of you, Steve, reflection of his mother and father, so... <laughs> well, I think know. if I'm a, fra a fraction of him, then I'm probably doing okay. Yeah. Oh, you're doing yeah. amazingly well. You're doing amazingly well, and it's incredible to see you continuing Jordan's legacy. The people who are listening or people watching right now who are contemplating committing suicide what would you say to them very very difficult because on the one hand thing the message I share a lot and it's shared by others is is there is always hope and and part of what I do now is I deliver workshops and talks around having that conversation with someone who's who's considering taking their own lives and 
you know, we know that if we can create that distraction at that moment for them, take them away from that position that they're in, then, then we've got a fighting chance. And the hope is, is this, that we know quite often at the point that someone's decided to take their own lives, that all the good times, all the good things that they thought might happen at that moment have gone. That's just so overwhelmed. So everything is focused right now on this pain. So the good times that we know are there and have happened and the good times that we know will come, they've, they've kind of just disappeared out of the mind, but they're there that there is hope. There are so many cases of people that have recovered from absolute despair. But if you take that step, mm. if you take that step to end your life, that hope has gone. There's no, there's no kind of coming back from that ever. You've taken the ultimate decision to end your life and there is no hope. One of Jordan's close friends just happened to notice he changed his job on, on LinkedIn. And, and so just, sent him a message, see how you're doing. And we just had a chat on LinkedIn and he said, you know, I went over to see Jordan, you know, last week and I spent 30 minutes there by the graveside. And I just kind of chatted with him about my job and, you know, family and all these things. And, um, you know, he just said, I still miss him. And, you know, these, these lads are in their thirties. They're having to deal with the loss of their friend and, you know, there is hope there is there is always hope i think we have to accept the fact that suicide is an option something the samaritans say they they you know they're really clear on this is to say that if someone is is considering this we we always leave it on the table as an option because it's the only thing that people think they've still got in their control and this is often why people look quite happy and upbeat in the day or the moments before people say they just seem so so happy and then and this is what happens because they finally believe they've got this this solution and all the pressure and all the pain where they thought they were trapped and they had no way out are suddenly gone because we've got this this solution now so the conversations you know when I coach people now is to say look I you know I I appreciate Steve this is this is an option taking your own life is is an option but is it an option you have to consider right now today well shall we go for a walk shall we have a talk and let's just see if there are some other options there can you take us through jordan's legacy you know i i knew as i said very little about this world at mm. all so i needed to be educated and and you know when people started reaching out to me who were struggling and wanted to speak to me you know first thing i started doing was, was kind of picking up the phone and talking to i soon learned you know i just couldn't do that at that that volume and, and plus what what did i really know so you know i started to go on this very rapid learning journey about mental health and suicide and and you know all the stats and all the figures and all the stories were were coming my way and and you know i was just staggered by the scale of it and and the personal stories as well but I thought, well, how do I help? You know, what, what can I do? So, you know, I, I looked to the family and, and both Jordan's mother, who, you know, she and I divorced in, in 2005, but we stayed very close and, and we have a good family bond and, and, and relationship with everybody. And she'd been a senior mental health nurse, um, psychiatric nurse for, for more than 20 years, you know, and, and even she didn't know this was going to happen. But, you know, she was able to advise me. Charlotte, Jordan's girlfriend, at the time this happened, was just about to put her dissertation in to become a clinical psychologist, which she now has done. She she stepped back, understandably, for quite a period of time that first year to 
try and deal with the trauma and of what she'd seen and, and, and had to deal with it, you know, 28 years old. So I kind of learned all this. And I, I was fortunate I got together with a couple of people and, and one particular guy called Paul, who works with me closely now, and Paul Vittles. And he'd just come back from working, living in Australia, been there with his wife for 15 years, working in suicide prevention over there. And he kind of opened my my eyes to what is known as the zero suicide community worldwide, who are kind of an unregistered group of people doing what I do, but studies that came initially out of Detroit in the US where they'd successfully through kind of community involvement and, and other um, collaborations really managed to get the suicides of those known to mental health services down to, to 0%. Um, and a lot of their methods were being replicated in Mercy Care over here in the UK and in Australia. So I suddenly started to learn about this world and how if you can get a combination of a really effective leadership strategy from government and the uh, professional health services, but also have this amazing ground up strategy of communities, sports clubs, schools, businesses, all you know, coming together and taking practical action, then you can make a huge difference. And that is very much what the Jordan Legacy is about, where we, we do have lots and lots of resources on our website under the help menus, but we're not a crisis site where that's kind of there to deflect from me having to take all the calls sometimes and, and answer the questions. If, if people say, what do you do? Then we work strategically with communities and businesses and government mm -hmm. to look at practical solutions to helping to prevent suicide. That's really, really what we're about. There are some great crisis organizations out there from Samaritans to, to Mind to Papyrus and you know some great organizations and charities there. But if we're all dealing with the crisis end, we're not dealing with the prevention much further up the stream. And, and that's kind of where I see, we're not the only organization doing that, but that's very much where I see our role going forward, really. Mike McCarthy, who is an ex-BBC journalist who, who lost his son Ross to suicide last year, is a group of us putting together a project called The Baton of Hope. It's a little snippet of it on our news and events page on our website, thejordanlegacy.com. But essentially, if you can imagine everything that happened in London 2012 for the Olympics with the passing of the Olympic flame and torch around the UK, we're planning something on a similar scale nationally and already getting the backing and the thumbs up of some pretty big people and celebrities. And um, it's um, going to probably happen in 2023 because it's going to take a year of planning to make it happen. It's going to be... If we pull this off, it'll be the biggest suicide awareness campaign or event that this country has, has ever seen. And it will be about pulling all these organisations together in each region as the baton goes on its journey around the country there. So, uh, yeah, that's going to keep us busy. Sounds so amazing, Steve. Something that was really, really touching to me was that Charlotte asked Jordan, she asked him a, a very significant question. It was in regards to if he was given one million pounds or if he won the lottery, what would he do with it? And it's incredible to hear what he said he would do with it. And I remember this was a few months later that Charlotte said, did, did I ever tell you about the conversation? And Jordan and I had a few weeks or so, you know, before his death and about what he'd do if he won the lottery. And I said, no. She said, yeah, I asked him the question. I, I thought he'd just say, oh, we'd go on a nice holiday, buy a bigger house or whatever. And he just said, no. He said, I, I would 
I would invest it in a place where people who are struggling with their mental health could come to <laughs> to get well again. And gosh, you know, when she, she kind of just told me that, not in a matter of fact way, but just in a conversation. And, and I, you know, it just blew me away. And, and that was Jordan. Sometimes I, I, I kind of feel maybe I use this work to distract myself from what's happening. And it's not until you kind of start talking about the details and what goes on that it, you know, it, it, you know, it's still there. It's still mm -hmm. right there under the surface. And, uh, you know, it, it always will be really one humorous moment. I can leave us on though. I can tell you that my cat is scratching at my office window, <laughs> desperately trying to get in. It's just life just still does kind of carry on sometimes. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> how can the viewers and the listeners, how can they connect with you? The jordanlegacy.com website, get in touch with us directly there. Lots of really useful resources as well. Do check the drop down menus underneath the help menu at the top yes. of the page almost you know lots of different aspects of mental health or, or issues related to suicide or suicide bereavement there um or or via linkedin you know steve philip and that's uh, two l's a p at the end of my last name and no s okay. now, people always get it wrong but um yeah you know, find me on on linkedin and can follow me there uh, that's probably the best places to go yeah amazing well once again see thank you so much for sharing jordan's legacy with us and and thank you for dedicating yourself to help others especially those who are contemplating committing suicide during these times it's just it's truly incredible thank you no thank you for inviting me rebecca thank you there is always hope.